Chanel Connects, a new podcast series connecting creative game changers from across the arts in conversation from their homes and studios. Tilda Swinton, Kira Knightley, Edward Annenfeld, Lulu Wong, Pharrell Williams, and many more. So you just witnessed the turning point. <laughs> that was the turning point in action. This is Chanel Connects. Available wherever you get your podcasts. Design is not only objects, it's also behaviors. And sometimes it's about objects are ways to change behaviors. Hi, I'm Andrew Goldstein, and this is The Art Angle, a podcast from Artnet News where the art world meets the real world, bringing each week's biggest story down to earth. It's no secret that we are living through a period of crisis with an ongoing pandemic, a warming planet, and troubles of every stripe. In times like these, some people throw up their hands and despair. Other people get down to work and design solutions. As the world-renowned curator of design at the Museum of Modern Art, Paola Antonelli is an expert in these solutions. Who is making them, what they are, and what they mean for humanity? An Italian-born curator who joined MoMA in 1994 and has since thoroughly rebooted the way the museum thinks of design, showcasing everything from quote-unquote mutant materials to video games to the rainbow LGBTQ plus flag, Antonelli currently has a thought-provoking show on the state of the planet titled Broken Nature. Today, to talk about how design has morphed over this turbulent last year and where it is heading post-pandemic, I'm very pleased to have Paola Antonelli on the show. So thank you very much for coming on The Art Angle, Paola. And thank you very much for inviting me. I'm happy to be here. So you are the curator of design at the Museum of Modern Art, which is arguably the preeminent post of its kind in America, if not the world. In a nutshell, how would you describe what you do? So I use my passion for design to help people develop their own critical tools. So I believe that design is one of the highest forms of creative expression that human beings have. And I also believe that design is for the people in most cases. So I want to make sure that people have the critical tools that they need in order to push back, demand better, change behaviors, to be aware of this incredible force that is in their lives. Everything that is made is designed. So how do you define design in the context of what you do and how is it discrete from, say, architecture or art? Well, it's not discrete from architecture. Actually, people might think that I'm being blasphemous, but I consider architecture a branch of design. And I studied architecture. I mean, I'm an architect by training. I studied it in Italy. It was completely free. Like, I think I paid $200 a year. It was free university, free education. And we were an enormous amount of students. We were like 15,000 students only in Milan, only in architecture. That means you wouldn't study anything practical, but the theory would be really meaty. We learned all these different approaches. We can become really philosophical and talk about means and goals. So the means are the materials at your disposal, your culture, the producer, all the means of production that you can find available. And the goal is whatever you want to achieve, whether it's a building or a lamp. You can be really philosophical. So from that viewpoint, architecture is one of the possible scales of application of design. So there's no distinction uh, for me between architecture and design. Art is a different matter. But, you know, to distinguish design from art, you cannot use 
the object itself. You cannot use the materials or the mediums because right now there's a lot of uh, wishful imitation or kind of contamination. What you can do is think philosophically of the goals of the project at hand. Design has to be for others, as I said before. So an artist can choose whether to be responsive and responsible towards other human beings or not. A designer has to be by definition. Now, that doesn't mean that the designer is automatically good, but there's this different context to design. And speaking of being responsive and responsible, what has been your own experience with the pandemic? How has it changed your interactions with design? My relationship with design, if anything, was fortified. I recognized the might and the far-reaching power of design in the pandemic. I have looked at design born out of necessity. The famous motto that necessity is the mother of invention was extremely alive and kicking during the pandemic for designers. And I have, if anything, taken advantage, and I put that between quotes, of the pandemic to explain to people how important design is even more. And we've been paying a lot of attention here at the Art Angle about how the events of this past year from the pandemic to the movement for racial justice and inclusion have impacted the art world. How have they impacted the design community? Big time. And, you know, I realized that so far until this moment in our conversation, I've been too abstract, frankly. So I should become much more granular. So what is design and what is design in the context of the pandemic? Well, it's, of course, the personal protective equipment, the PPE, the masks that are available for citizens to protect themselves and others. But it's also the dashboards that we have been looking, watching, studying every single day in outlets ranging from the New York Times to our television channels. It is also the methods and the systems of communication that different public institutions, either governments or cities or even institutions, have used to communicate to citizens what they should do and how they should behave in order to be mindful of others and avoid contagion. Design has been also developing new bike lanes so that people can use bicycles that are safer when it comes to contagion than other means of transportation. It has meant letting restaurants have tables and chairs outside because otherwise the whole industry would go under. So it's all these different facets of the response that we have seen to the pandemic. And you could even say that we have been designing performances to communicate to the public. You know, I'm thinking of Italy, six o'clock every night, everybody going on balconies and singing or making music of different kinds, 7 p.m. here in New York, everybody clapping and cheering first-line defenders and necessary workers. And design has been celebrated and used and really heightened in its significance during the pandemic at all scales. Would you consider there being any signal designs of the pandemic, the ones that are the most successful, the most lasting so far? Well, it's so hard to say because we're still in the thick of it. I know that there have been some designs that will not necessarily remain. In the course of the pandemic, together with my great friend, Alice Rostorn, who's a great design critic, we started this whole Instagram Live series called Design.Emergency. 
And just before this year's holidays in December, we did an episode, a duet about hope. And we talked about the projects that either were started by the pandemic or were enhanced that we hope will stay. So I can tell you, I'm really hoping that the outdoor restaurants will stay in New York because they make me feel home. It feels like Milan. It feels like Europe. And I really do hope that many more people will use bicycles. I do hope that people will be more mindful of each other. Remember one thing, design is not only objects, it's also behaviors. And sometimes it's about objects are ways to change behaviors. So I am hoping that in the future we will use masks like Japanese or Chinese people do. I live in Chinatown in New York, so I've seen Chinese people use masks throughout my life here. So I hope that we will learn these behaviors that are enhanced by objects also in the future. One design topic that the pandemic has created a lot of discussion around is the office. And the consensus seems that 2020 accelerated us to the point where we're eventually going to return to the office, but it's going to be in this hybrid scenario of distributed employees working partly from home, partly from the office, connected by Zoom, and fearful of these newly traditional open plan workplaces that we've all become accustomed to. What do you think we're going to see when it comes to the future of the office? Yeah, it's really, it's a big debate. And it makes me smile a little bit because in 2001, I curated an exhibition at MoMA called Work Spheres. So at that time, it was the beginning of remote work right after the dot-com boom, at the beginning of the dot-com bust. But there were all these myths about working remotely and also all these fears that are very similar to today. And I remember that in 2000, right after the fear of Y2K, there was this whole idea of, oh my God, if we will be working from home, what will we do? How will we preserve and keep our family life safe? Should we kind of like mimic a commute around the block and pretend we're going to work? Should we change our clothes? And the funny thing mm. is that the conversations today are completely similar. The only difference is that at that time, it was all about audio and email. Today, it's also about video. But otherwise, we will all adapt. Those of us that have the privilege of being able to choose, because there are so many people, let's remember, that are not able to choose any, anything this pandemic has heightened the differences and the disparities amongst people. But those of us that are free to choose will, I think, still try to look for ways to come together because we are social beings. When it comes to a city like New York, we also care about others. And I feel that so many of us are concerned for the restaurant industries and for all the service industries that are made idle by the impossibility of going to the office. Your office is amazingly inside the Museum of Modern Art, which just had a $500 million renovation and expansion around a year ago. Now that we have all these new sanitation requirements and social distancing requirements, does it make you look at any of the design elements around the museum and think, hmm, maybe that wasn't such a great idea after all? You know what? Not at all. I was very, very, very proud of having been asked to be on the crisis management team at MoMA, which means that throughout the pandemic, I went to MoMA pretty much once a week. We retained an immunologist from Mount Sinai, that is a big hospital in New York City, to help us prep the museum, both for visitors and for employees. Dr. Kamins, that's his name, 
walked the whole museum with us from, from the carpentry shop to the entrance of the museum. And together with some other museums in New York City, we established protocols. It's been such an interesting adventure for a curator of design and for a curator in general. But to make a long story short, the museum is so well set up when it comes to everything from ventilation to space. I mean, all we had to do besides, of course, creating the entry checks that are necessary for temperature and for sanitation. But all we had to do was to have many sanitation stations around the museum and implement social distancing. It really was the whole design and also the expansion were incredibly flexible and adaptable to the situation. Another design moment that has really gotten a lot of attention seems to be the rise of this movement in the UK that has been dubbed, you know, quote, the new London fabulous. And it's multicultural, it's joyful, it's rainbow-hued, it's polyglot. It takes an approach to architecture and design that is at the same time retro and explosively inventive, kind of like Peter Blake's work with the Beatles. Instead of pulling from the imagery of ye olde British empire, it's pulling from reference points around the globe. Have you encountered this new London fabulous style yet? I have looked at it. You know, I'm always a little iffy when it comes to trends and styles, especially now. I mean, once upon a time it was true, but right now there's such this beautiful panoply and cornucopia of possible styles that people can draw from. So everything goes in fashion and in architecture. What I like very much about this grouping is the kind of enthusiasm and cheerfulness about different cultures. Because that's really what's wonderful right now, the fact that we can truly draw from so many different cultures. You know, you pointed out one of the critiques of this new London Fabulous, which is that it's been dismissed as an easy Instagram trap. The multiculturalism is very much embraced, but it's easy Instagram appropriateness is a little bit suspicious. And lots has been written about how Instagram has shaped recent art but how is it impacting design right now? It's interesting because I use Instagram a lot, but not the way other people might. So I don't browse design enough. I browse more news and animals, I confess. <laughs> but I have to say that as for everything, there's different ways to use a platform like Instagram. Like, for instance, Alice, I was telling you about Alice Rostorn, her feed it's like uh, more than an encyclopedia. It's like a Wikipedia of design. You know, if you look at Virgil Abloh or other style mavens that instead tend to have a different kind of communication that is less cultural, less scholarly, and maybe more about lifestyle and aspirations, I guess that in some cases it has made design slightly more superficial, but in other, instead, it has contributed to more awareness, more more literacy, if I can use that name, and also more understanding of different cultures once again. I tend to follow feeds that are from parts of the world that are not normally reached by design publications. There are so many Chinese websites that I don't have access to because I have not learned Mandarin or mastered Mandarin yet. But with Instagram, because it is image-based, sometimes there's a way to understand something that I wouldn't be able to understand otherwise. It seems to me that social media is all about the gamification of sociality, where your score is tallied in terms of likes and followers, and you can level up in terms of power and influence just like you can in any role-playing game. And 
You've done a lot of work with games. Do you consider social media platforms as coming under your purview as curator? I mean, social media is a platform. So in a way, it would be compared to video game, it's as if you were talking about the Xbox, right? So my purview is the video game itself. The Xbox enables it. So similarly with Instagram, it is an enabler of different forms of expressions. We began acquiring video games from MoMA. We have been acquiring also some interfaces, at least some early ones and considered others, but we have not yet thought of acquiring social media. And I don't think that I would acquire anybody's feed because that would go more into maybe media and performance as a department of MoMA, you know, depending on the feed itself. So I'm not sure that I would consider it a form of design, but rather a form of filmography or or media performance. Also with video games, we had this ambivalence. And so we made a very clear declaration of the fact that we were acquiring video games as design and we established some criteria. But at the same time, other departments at MoMA have been acquiring other video games that were instead artwork. And recently we have been discussing a lot, just collaborating with the Department of Media and Performance. And this goes to tell you, it's a little bit what we were saying before. You cannot anymore tell if something is design, media or art based on the medium. It really is a conversation that has to do with context, with intentions, with audience. It's fascinating. We're getting to the point that really departments are just a functional way to try and deal with the vastness of creative output that is in front of us. As you've mentioned, you, you've acquired quite a few video games for the collection from Pac-Man to Tetris to the, the cult RPG Dwarf Fortress. And you've called video games, quote, the purest form of interaction. And I wonder if you can explain what you mean by that. When I say interface, it's anything that enables us to communicate with a computer of some sort. So interface is the MetroCard machine, right? So when you go and you try to buy your MetroCard, you're dealing with an interface. You go to the bank to get your money or you're using any kind of app on your phone. Somebody has designed that interface. As you know very well, some interfaces are fun and super easy to use. Others are cryptic. Others are corny. You know, so they run the whole gamut. And these interfaces dictate your behavior. So what you see in front of you is a design that reverberates in your own behavior. Some interfaces can be very manipulative, right? So video games use interfaces and the design of the video game itself to dictate your behavior in a way that is not manipulative because you know very well what's going on and actually becomes fun. So Tetris, Simplest or Pac-Man. So it really is about you interacting with the machine. And that's what I meant. There was no other functionality but that of being entertained. Well, more recently, video games have become whole platforms that can also educate, that can denounce, that can stimulate awareness. So it's a different world. But at the very beginning, it was just entertainment. They were all about you just killing time. I mean, now, as we know, the pandemic has accelerated the already tremendous growth of the video game industry to the point where I just read that it's now bigger than movies and North American sports combined, which is just a kind of a staggering footprint in the culture. Video games have become just the basis for a whole 
universe of interactions. So if you have an Xbox or any other kind of gaming platform, you also have communication, you also have marketing, you also have advertising. We know very well that during the pandemic, Animal Crossing, which is a pretty great game, has become also the place for many fashion brands to have their own stores and also shows. So it's not any much only about video games and a certain gigantic segment of our world lives on those platforms. How do you see video games evolving as a piece of the larger culture? Is it going to expand and encompass other parts? Well, I hope that sooner rather than later, and I hope it's sooner, we'll stop calling them video games because truly video games are just an aspect of it. I think there's all these different universes. I mean, just think about when you want to watch a movie and you look at whatever device you have in front of you and you have so many different worlds or pockets or reservoirs, but they're more like environments that you can choose from, from the basic Netflix versus Prime versus Hulu, etc., to getting also your friends sending you via YouTube. So you have this whole universe in front of you and different points of access. And being a big sci-fi fan, I remember how I immediately jumped and went on Second Life. Do you remember that terrible? Mm -hmm, <laughs> I mean, mm -hmm. talk about interfaces. I went there right away because why? I, it's not that I cared about those avatars, but you could teleport. And to me, teleportation was the holy grail, right? So similarly right now, with the plethora of possibilities, I see this ability of not really teleportation, but just parallel universes that you can live in at the same time. Younger generations are much more comfortable. They have that built-in ease with this ubiquitous and omnipresent absence of space-time divisions with this continuum. Some of us that remember the world as it was before have to maybe get a little more training, but I see this huge possibility of being able to have access to many people, many forms of communication, many forms of entertainment, many forms of engagement at the same time. It's interesting you mentioned sci-fi because at the same time as we're, we're going into these second lives, third lives, fourth lives, we're also going closer to the future envisioned in Minority Report, the Steven Spielberg movie version, where you have AR and VR converging in these manipulatable information technology universes. You know, you have dashboards that appear in front of your face. You've got targeting <laughs> that approaches you of, of subway ads. It actually pops up as a hologram. How far away do you think we are from some kind of world where we're immersed in an AR, VR kind of information technology universe? Not far at all. No, I mean, especially AR. VR is still a little complicated because it requires you disconnecting from the other world. AR I've always found much more interesting because the layering can add different levels of information and communication. But I think we've been testing both in sci-fi and also in experimentation. We've been testing all of these technologies for a while. And once again, I think that everything will be okay so long as we develop citizens' critical sense and awareness. What matters is that people know what they're getting and sign on the dotted line only, only if they want to. So I really like all this conversation that is happening around privacy, even though it's happening only in different parts of the world. Actually, in other parts of the world, it's really moving backwards. But 
being aware of what your rights are and what's going on when apps or browsers follow you and just knowing what the risks are and how you can protect yourself is important because once you know where you stand, then you can go further. There are some people who have been foretelling some kind of dystopian singularity (laughs) situation. Are you more on the optimistic side of things or are you on the pessimistic side of things? I am skeptical. I think that skepticism is the best way to go because it allows you to be alert. It's a little bit like, you know, that discovery that when you keep mice on the edge of survival, they actually live longer and they get tougher. So I'm always aware that things can go wrong. And for that reason, I am always hopeful, but never really content and comfortable. So I don't know what's going to happen, but I don't think we can stop progress. All we can do is to maintain our humanity, try to find wisdom. You know, the big issue right now is the care for the environment, the care for cultures that were here before our modern world and that have a wisdom that we could learn from. All this can be part of progress. And do you think that this is something that is the responsibility of governments? Or do you think it's the responsibility of different bodies? Well, different bodies for sure. It's the responsibility of governments, but as citizens, we cannot abdicate it all and rely on governments for everything. I think that at least when it comes to wisdom, we should be very much active and ready. Governments are us, right? Or at least they should be in an ideal world. So we are as responsible as our leaders. We have hopes that a new government will be more representative of us as humans, of course. Still, government is us, so we have to be active. We cannot just like sit back and then blame politicians for what they have not done. Speaking of President Biden and, you know, the hopefulness that surrounds his administration and also the spreading of the vaccine, it seems likely that we're eventually, you know, hopefully by the end of this year, going to emerge to a large degree from the pandemic. But we're going to plop right from the frying pan into the fire of the climate emergency. And (laughs) I wonder, what do you see as some of the most hopeful solutions, or at least the most helpful developments that have been emerging from the design community in this area? The ones that to me are the most interesting are the ones that take into account the fact that these emergencies and this crisis are not separate, but they're all interconnected. So human rights in poverty, hunger and climate emergency and also the virus, they are connected. I feel that we can't with one design solution address everything, but I like very much how we have been tackling as designers multiple issues. Like something that is really quite interesting is this project called the Great Green Wall of Africa that is one of Alice's beloved projects. And the idea is to have at the southern edge of the Sahel in Africa to have this wall of vegetation that could change, that 
cuts across Africa and could really change climate in a good way and be something that is really grassroots, that is actually spearheaded by citizens in every different country that the Great Green Wall crosses. And it just received $14 billion funding just last week. This is a design project. Of course, it's not a designer coming out of a design school. It's more like a consortium of citizens, of states, of scientists. Design, of course, is cute chair, but it's also this kind of epic visionary projects that have a scale that can be seen from the gods up in the sky. So this is very hopeful. And it addresses, of course, the environmental crisis, but it also addresses hunger, it addresses agriculture, it addresses the connection between different states, it addresses the role of Africa in the future. So it's a big deal. And there are several projects that are like this, some big, some small, but this is definitely one. A little while ago, you did a show called Neri Oxman Material Ecology. That was a pretty breathtaking show, and it kind of pursued a different thread on the theme of environmentalism. And I wonder, who is Neri Oxman, and what is material ecology? So Neri Oxman is a wonderful architect and a great friend and a designer and visionary whose work I've been following since she was still in school because she had a take on the relationship between design and nature that was incredibly interesting. So as you know, for centuries, as human beings, we've been looking to nature for guidance. We've been trying to imitate the way nature forms objects and buildings. And this idea of organic design, once upon a time, used to be imitation of forms. Then we've been trying to imitate structures. But lately, what is really fabulous is that Thanks to the computer, we've been able to get much closer to the way actually nature makes and builds and grows. So Mary, since the very beginning, I mean, I met her in 2007. I was working on an exhibition called Design in the Elastic Mind. It was about design and science. At that time, Mary was trying to look at natural behaviors like the bark of certain trees and trying to extract an algorithm from that behavior so that that algorithm could then be used in 3D printing to, say, build more efficient facades of buildings. Just to give you an example, from looking and modeling natural behaviors, she's moved to actually try to build with nature. So one of the centerpieces in this beautiful show at Moment Material Ecology was the Silk Pavilion, the second version of it which was a pavilion that was truly a collaboration between the architect, that's Neri, and 17,000 silkworms that were put in the conditions to do their job and actually treated better than they would be in the silk industry because they were not boiled after extruding their silk thread. So letting 17,000 silkworms doing their thing understanding and modeling the way they would behave in order to reach a structure, an architectural structure, that is what the architect had kind of in mind, but that also takes into account the degree of freedom of the construction workers that are the silkworms. So that's just an example, but it's truly the idea of finding ways to grow objects and buildings that is more attuned to the way nature makes and also destroys. And that's one of the possible ways to tackle more responsible fashions and methods of building and building our world. I know that one of her goals is to bring about a change 
where we are no longer able to differentiate or separate between the natural and the artificial. And why is that important? And who does it matter is not able to differentiate between the natural and the artificial? It's almost like a limit or an aspiration that you have to set for yourself that you might never really touch, but that remains there as a North Star. And I feel that it's not really a matter of intellectually making the distinction, but rather it's a matter of functionally and environmentally making the distinction. Almost everything that we have been inserting into the natural environment for quite a few decades has been quite imperialistic in spirit, right? So we haven't really thought about what we were doing or whether we were part of an ecosystem. We've always thought that the ecosystem existed for us. So I feel that this is an adjustment of balance that is necessary, even though it doesn't mean that the human species has to disappear completely. It rather means that we have to adjust our position relative to other species and to the rest of the world. It's fascinating that you you talk about imperialism because your latest show, which is called Broken Nature, also takes a kind of a political tack on ecology, where you argue that because of all the desperation that humanity has inflicted on the planet, that we are now obligated to pay what you call environmental reparations. And I wonder what you mean by that and how something like that could be possible. Well, you know, it's happened during the pandemic. It's very interesting. I'm not hoping for that. But because of the fact that we all had to lock down and we couldn't travel anymore, et cetera, all of a sudden emissions have gone down and Delhi has seen blue skies for the first time in this period of the year. And Los Angeles, you could kiss the mountains from downtown. You know, it was just this example of what could happen. Of course, that was a situation that was so extraordinary that I don't think we can even hope We should not hope to repeat it, for God's sakes. But we've seen what would happen if we were able to go on, how do you call it when you don't eat for a day? Fast. Oh, thank you. Fast. If we could fast on our environmental hunger for days or weeks at a time. I don't think that that's really possible. I don't think that anything so drastic should be something that we should strive for. But there are many small ways to do better and to start moving in that direction. And the essay for Broken Nature in the catalog starts with a quote from Buckminster Fuller that I think is always very valid, which is thinking of each one of us as trim tabs. You know, trim tabs are those small steering paddles that you can put underneath a gigantic oil tanker. And of course, one of them cannot do anything, but many of them all steering in the same direction can steer a gigantic oil tanker. Same thing. If we consider each other as citizens, part of a community, and we realize our power, we can make adjustments that steer the whole collective behavior in different ways. And Broken Nature was about showing Many different ways of approaching, we called it restorative design. You know, I had a wonderful curatorial team with Ala Tanir, Laura Meran, and Erika Petrillo, and it was the 22nd Triennale di Milano. It started there. Restorative design means being responsible, being receptive to this idea of the environmental crisis, but without sacrificing the kind of pleasure and satisfaction in being human and creative humans that we seek from design and from art. So it means 
being able to do good and at the same time enjoy it. It's about restorative techniques that go from, of course, recycling and upcycling to keeping one object for a really long time to using waste, not as waste, but as new material. So it's many different strategies that altogether reflect the complete and full potential of design. I think it's fascinating that you have this very ameliorative kind of solutions-based program that you're laying out here. At the same time, it seems that you've taken a very bracingly fatalistic view of the ultimate endgame. And you once said, quote, we don't have the power to stop our extinction, but we have the power to make it count. And I wonder if you can unpack that a little bit. Well, it's, it's, it's a fact. Right. It's not even fatalistic. Everything ends. A universe, a flower, a human life. So also as a species, we will at some point end. And what I think is that we have no control on that fact, but we have some control on the when, if we do better, and we definitely have a lot of control on the how. And just like for a human life, once a person realizes that she or he or they are about to die or just starts to have a sense of their mortality, they start thinking of their legacy, the same we should do as a species, right? We cannot just not think about it. We have to make account. We have to do better so that the next dominating species will think of us with some affection and some nostalgia and maybe even incorporate some of our culture and our memory into their own. And of course, here in this analogy, you're saying that humanity is like the reckless teenager that thinks that they're going to live forever, has a long life ahead of them, and is just acting recklessly? Or are you saying that we're the, <laughs> the let's say, autumnal years <laughs> individual? If there's people that are not reckless are teenagers. Oh my God, they're so much wiser than we are. So it's like the reckless middle-aged or the reckless boomers. You know, one of the most beautiful and satisfactory outcomes of the Triennale in Milan was that the kids that were doing Fridays for the Future, that were followers of Greta Thunberg, they would gather at Broken Nature and then start their protests from there. So that goes to tell you that really moved me. But I believe that teenagers are my gurus. I look to them uh, more than I look to anybody else because they have a feeling of what you and I are talking about that is more instinctive and in their skin than anybody else could. I mean, we all know what millennial design has been, you know, unfortunately pegged as with millennial pink and the Museum of Ice Cream and all these things. Is there such a thing as a Gen Z design that is emerging for you? Not really, not yet. Just wisdom and pluralism and diversity. Thankfully, there's nothing so stereotypical. Instead, there's a lot of different wise solutions. And more than anything, there's inquisitiveness, which I praise and I really seek higher than any other quality. Inquisitiveness is what's going to get them far. And I really believe in them. So obviously design is highly reactive. It's constantly evolving. Do you feel that it's your responsibility to shape and advance certain trends? Or do you think that you have the responsibility to promote a certain vision or agenda when it comes to design and the way that design is a conduit for different kinds of philosophies or movements in the world? My responsibility is to show great examples and explain them. 
sometimes show bad examples and explain them too, but it depends on the context. You know, the idea of a curator of design as the arbiter of elegance is so old, it's not funny. First of all, who am I to be an arbiter? I am a tourist guide. I'm a really trusted guide, that's for sure. I proved myself and I can be trusted, but I always make sure to explain to people that I'm giving my own opinion that's very informed and I expose the information. And then I hope that people will take it as their own and just incorporate it. So outside of your, you know, your role as the Arbiter Elegantii, what do you hope is going to happen in design in 2021? Well, first of all, I hope that designers will be able to pay their rent because it's been tough. Like everyone else, I just hope that designers will regain a sense of community and some grounding under their feet. That's for sure. That said, I just hope that they will retain the sense of urgency that comes from this particular circumstances and will carry it with them, even though when things will go back to or go forward to normal, I think there's going to be a certain desire to be light and maybe a little bit elated. But still, I hope that this sense of gravity and emergency will stay with us, even if we will need to have some good times for a while. Paula, it has been so thought-provoking and fascinating to talk to you, and I hope that we get to do it again on the, on the other side of this and see what you've actually acquired for the museum from this era. Thank you, Andrew. It's been my pleasure, my delight. And uh, I hope that, yes, we will have another good conversation soon. Well, that's it for this week's episode of The Art Angle. If you like what you heard, you can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Also, take a moment to rate and review us. It will help other listeners discover what we're doing. The Art Angle is produced by Sonia Madalili, Tim Schneider, and Caroline Goldstein. Thanks for listening, and see you next week.